good morning. Glad you guys are here today. And uh, I believe summer is here. Uh, <laughs> last week I was like, wow, there's so many people here on a holiday weekend. It's fantastic. The summer's here. So I'm glad that you guys are here. You chose to be here. And uh, just, just one plug through the summer. I want to encourage you guys to continue to be here. Uh, one of the most important things about what we do is not what just happens in the service, but it is a community that we develop amongst each other. So we know you're going to be traveling. We want to give uh, prayers for those who are traveling. We're going to be traveling this summer as well. So, uh, But we do hope that we'll see you throughout this summer period. We've had such a great year and a great time together. I'm looking forward to the many of the things that are coming up um, in the very near future. Uh, we're going to be looking over today, we're going to be looking at a new story so if you want to turn to the book of Acts, we're going to be almost exclusively in the book of Acts today. And here, here's our goal for this series. So for biblical blunders, the whole goal for the series is that we not only understand, but we know how to work within a reality where we are prone to failure. Uh, the problem is that many of us have grown up in some kind of system or we've watched people around us in some kind of system that tells us we have to always be just a certain way. We need to always be good enough, always be right, always be perfect. And in the church, we have to balance a tightrope walk somewhat, and then we have to balance the difference between what it means to pursue God in a walk of holiness and the reality that until Christ returns or we're in heaven, we are going to struggle with still a sinfulness within ourselves that we can't just will out of the way. We can't just make ourselves not prone to that. We can't just be perfect if we try hard enough. That was the whole purpose of Christ giving his life. We can't do that. But a lot of us still try. And if we don't try ourselves, uh, at times we try to hold other people accountable to that level of action that none of us can truly maintain. And so our hope through this series of biblical blunders is we can see some people. Um, today we're going to be looking at Paul. Now last week we looked at Paul correcting Peter, two apostles, two big names. They're responsible for much of how Christianity was shaped following Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And yet they consistently show within their own lives an inability to maintain some kind of perfection that may be expected of them. So last week we looked at Paul, Paul holding Peter accountable. I thought it only makes sense this week for us to then look at Paul to say this guy wasn't perfect either. In fact, he may be the most honest of all the apostles about his imperfection. The truth is you and I, we can do a lot in this world just as the video shows if we try to do it on ourselves by ourselves, we just we will fail. And yet, one of the hopes of the gospel is that He empowers us to do so much more with our lives, so much more by relying on His power and His Spirit and what He wants to do in us. So we're going to kind of talk through a little bit of that this morning. If you'll start at Acts chapter nine, if you've got a Bible, you can open it. If you've got a phone or something, you can follow along on U version. If you need a Bible, there are plenty of Bibles that are out in the hallway. Those are free. Just grab one and take it with you. We're going to start, and I need to lead you through several parts of the story. We don't have time to go through the entire story, but I'm going to take you through parts of the story so you kind of see what's happening here. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 26, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is talking about Paul, 
Paul attempted to join the disciples. Now, this is happening right after Paul's had his vision on the road to Damascus, his experience with Jesus. And if you'll remember his story, Saul, before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. Saul was one of the largest persecutors of Christians at this time. He was feared. He was fervent in his trying to find those that said they followed Christ. He tried to end that movement. And on the road to Damascus, he has this experience with Christ. And Jesus says, Paul, why are you doing this? And in that moment, he realizes this is real. This is the real deal. This is the real thing that's happening right now. And at that time, he then goes to Jerusalem and he's supposed to go and present himself to the apostles who he was trying to kill. And yet he's supposed to go and say, no, I'm one of you. So that's kind of where we pick up in the story. This is happening immediately after that. And the reason this is relevant is because we're going to see that Paul is going to experience a level of grace with the help of someone else along the way. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So at this time, he is truly trying to be accepted but even if he's not paul's saying i i'm going for it i'm going to tell people everything i can about jesus because what i have experienced is absolutely real now the person i want you to key in on in that passage of scripture is not paul but is barnabas now in this particular story as everyone else is scared wondering is this a new tactic Uh, You know, if you're if you're a fan of espionage movies and shows, you you may live within a certain realm of conspiracy theory. Does anyone do that? You don't have to admit it. Some of you do admit it. You know it. And so our minds have been trained to come up with, well, what if they're actually doing this or that? Or what if they're real motor? What if what if Paul's actually not changed? This is all a big ruse so he can find out where we are, get in the room, and then they're going to storm in and they're going to kill us all. So you know that's somewhat going through their minds, except for one who saw potential in Paul, Barnabas. So the story today is going to be much about the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. The truth is, as we look through all of the great leaders in Scripture... As we look through all of the great writers of Scripture, as we look through people that we can, can follow their example, we see that they are such great followers of Christ. Even among great leaders, whether it's in the church today or then, great leaders need someone to be willing to walk through life with them. All great leaders need that. The perception is is that leaders just have something by themselves. They're just able to make things happen. They're just able to walk through life and they don't need anybody else. Other people need them. But the reality is whether you're at work or whether you're at church or at home, in your community, in your family, if you are a leader, you need others to walk through life with you. In fact, those leaders that sequester themselves 
and they believe in their own minds that they can do it all on their own are prone to failure because no one can live life that way, even the greatest of leaders. At this point, everybody's afraid of of Paul or is he Saul or trying to figure out what's going on with him. But the truth is that Barnabas was willing to take a chance that Jesus had radically changed him. Now, this tells us a few things about Barnabas, and I'll get into this in a minute. But it tells us one of the things that Barnabas is looking with hope that Jesus can truly change the most resistant lives. Barnabas believed not only in the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, but he believed that Jesus could change people. I also believe that God gave Barnabas a supernatural ability to see and discern when he was at work in somebody's life. Not all of us can say that. But I believe all of us want that at some point or another in our lives. Barnabas also had an important role both within the apostles, the disciples, in the church at large, of encouraging the redemptive work of Jesus in their lives. And here's what I want you to do as we go through this today. You're going to see yourself in a number of different stories, a number of different people, different profiles. I want you to see yourself in the profile of Paul, who is prone to make mistakes, but also a great leader who furthered the gospel. I want you to see yourself in the position of Barnabas as someone who has the opportunity to see value in somebody else and encourage that value in somebody else. But also see that you need a Barnabas in your life. Someone to encourage you and help you through those steps that you're taking them. If we go through the rest of the story, I will let you do this at home or do this on your own time. If we go through, we'll find in Acts chapter 12... We have another character into this story, and kind of what's happening here is this is where persecution is beginning to be turned on for the apostles. This is when they're really coming after the original disciples, they're coming after all the followers of Christ, and they're trying to kind of eradicate this movement of Christianity because it is sweeping all around the the known world at this time. And as it's sweeping through, we find the death of one of the disciples, James, the brother of John, And at the same time that this happens, Herod, the king, he sees that the people love him for killing James. And so he takes Peter captive. Now, Peter is a little bit of a different catch than James and that Peter was seen as the top apostle. And constantly within these battles and this persecution, there was this anxiety that happened because we want to stop these people. We want to cut off the head. But the last time we cut off the head, the church grew enormously. So we've got to be careful how we handle this Peter guy. But yet the community was so encouraged by James being killed that they put Peter in prison. Now, you want to read another great story of how God works What you'll find in chapter 12 is that an angel comes. Peter thinks he's dreaming or he's asleep. An angel comes. There's a great light in his prison cell. The chains fall off his arms and this angel literally leads him out of prison. And once he walks through the gates and he's free and he's out, as you read that story, he then goes to a home, the home of Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark who we often read in scripture as John Mark for that very reason. And so he goes there and he knocks on the door. It's kind of a fun story because it's fun once he's out of prison. But once he knocks on the door, someone comes to the door and they're like, that's Peter. 
So Peter, everybody's been praying for him. And here's Peter knocking on the door. Let me in, let me in. I'm out. Let me in, let me in. And so this servant runs into the house where everyone's praying and says, hey, Peter's here. As Peter continues to knock on the door, won't let him in. They say, what are you doing? It can't be real. Yeah, it is. And they heard his voice. Why aren't you letting him in? So anyway, it's a fun story. You can read through it. Life happens in crazy ways for everybody, even apostles. And so as he comes in, Peter's introduced, maybe not for the first time, but to Mary's son, John Mark, or John or Mark, depending on your translation, how it's read. This is the third character in our story that's going to show us what we can learn from Paul and Barnabas. We're not going to learn a whole lot from John Mark, although many of us can put ourselves in his position. But I want us to learn from Paul and from Barnabas as we go through this. Interestingly enough, shortly after this story, you'll read in Acts 12, King Herod dies a terrible death. And uh, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting read if you want to get in there. Acts, picking up verse 24, it says this. While this is all happening, as has happened throughout history, as this persecution deepens, the word of God increased and multiplied, verse 24 says. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Three of them partner up, and they begin to go on their merry way. One of the things that I know is true in ministry is that the ability to have people alongside of you is huge. Doing ministry all by yourself, and there are a few who do that. There are some evangelists who literally do everything themselves. We've been to revivals before where an evangelist will not only preach, but will sing all the songs and do the whole shebang. I mean, they do all of it themselves. Oftentimes, their spouse will be their bookkeeper, administrator, manager, you know, person who books all their different things they do, and they will go through life doing ministry all by themselves. I, I don't know how they do it. I wouldn't ever want to do that. But if you've been in any kind of ministry or if you've lived any life at all, we find that doing life with people is a lot better than doing life by ourselves. And so we have these three that are beginning to travel together and they're teaching together. They're learning from each other and they're able to multiply their efforts at the same time, have somebody with them when they're running for their lives, somebody with them when they're struggling to stay on track, somebody with them to say, you're doing a good job, keep going, somebody with them to bounce ideas off of, look what I believe God's telling me. Do you guys tell me, am I going nuts here? And it's just a wonderful thing to have people to go alongside ministry with you. Whether it be in a church or an evangelical ministry, doing revivals or, or whatever. Whether it's in some kind of camping ministry or whether it's in some kind of missions ministry around the world. To have other people with you is huge. And so we find in this story that the three of them have come together. And they're beginning to work with each other. And they're beginning to understand each other. They're beginning to see what God wants to do among them. One of the neat things about John Mark coming on with them is that he had seen firsthand what life was going to be like. He had seen it in Peter's life. He was there when he came into the house. He knew what was waiting for him, and yet he still went. We live in a world today where we don't want to commit to much. We're afraid of a lot. And we'll do anything 
to avoid harm. So it tells us something big about John Mark that he's willing to go in the midst of his persecution. It tells us something about his character, his integrity. It tells us something about what God has done in his life. But we're going to see how that changes for Paul shortly. Acts chapter 13, if we skip ahead, we're trying to get up to 15. But Acts chapter 13, it talks, doesn't say a whole lot about what they do. But it says that now Paul and his companions, talking about Barnabas and John Mark, set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, Pamphylia. And it says John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now at some point along the way, he gets cold feet. don't really know the whole story, don't really know what it is. There's, There are a lot of theories as to why he left. But regardless in Paul's eyes and the way that Paul writes the story, and in this situation where Luke writes the story, because Luke is the author of Acts, as he reads through, as he tells the story, for whatever reason, all we know is he gets tired or fed up or scared or sick or worried about somebody or for whatever reason, maybe he just gave up. We don't really know the whole story, but he leaves. He goes back to Jerusalem. My guess is he didn't give up. My guess is it wasn't because he just didn't care anymore. You just don't enter into this kind of ministry and then just stop caring. You go in with eyes wide open and for whatever reason, he leaves the group. Now, have you ever had a relationship with a group of people that you feel someone has betrayed you? You ever experienced that? You ever gone into a meeting and you think somebody's on your side and all of a sudden they bring up the reason that the whole department is failing is because of you and you feel a sense of betrayal? Or have you ever had a group of friends and this is tough whenever you're going through middle of high school, maybe a little bit of college, and you think you've got a group of friends and you find out one of your close friends is talking about you behind your back and it hurts, you feel betrayed. See, one of the most difficult feelings to go through is the feeling of betrayal. Like you've turned your back. Somebody's turned their back on you. And what we find is that Paul feels that way about whatever John Mark has done is exactly how he feels. That he has turned his back on him, he has turned his back on the gospel, and he has turned his back on the calling that Christ gave him. John left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, in every story, we can find reasons to learn from someone else's example. We can learn from John Mark. We at times feel like John Mark. I at times feel like John Mark. Like I'm going and I know what I'm doing, and then I think I'm going to head back to Jerusalem where it's safe. And it's easy, and it's comfortable, and life makes more sense for Mark. And there are times that we absolutely know what it feels like to be failures, to make blunders, to make mistakes. We know what it feels like to go through life and to feel like we have failed. We, we all have experienced that in some way or the other. The only people who haven't experienced that feeling are the people who are blind to their own failures. We go through life and we struggle, and that's what's happened. Let's fast forward to Acts chapter 15. We're getting to really where we're wanting to spend the meat of our time says here and i want you to recognize that by the time these next events begin to happen 
A relationship between Paul and Barnabas has been built over many, many years. By the time that this clash that we're about to read about happens, these guys have been traveling together. They have shared their deepest, darkest needs, fears, and feelings together. And they've been doing this for years. And this is where we pick up in this story. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other barnabas took mark with him and sailed away to cyprus paul chose silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the lord and he went through syria and cilicia strengthening the churches you ever had a friendship that's lasted for years You think this is probably a period of 10 to 15 years here. It's lasted for years and you come to such a sharp disagreement, which is kind of nice terminology, right? A sharp disagreement and so that you break fellowship and you go your separate ways. Because that's what's happening. And there's a lot of things that we can learn from this. Here's what I want to do. I want to go through some lessons we can learn from Paul, lessons we can learn from Barnabas, and then what do we take away from this whole story what we read in that in paul's life is that paul took a call to ministry very seriously if god called you to something and told you to do something paul took that seriously so much so that paul was really he was literally willing to give up his whole life to pursue this calling Paul was willing to go wherever God told him to go, do whatever he said. He would eventually say, listen, if you're not married, just don't be married. I mean, just go and be focused on serving the Lord. Paul was hardcore. Most of us could not live within the realities that Paul created for himself or felt that God had called him to. He was a serious follower, a serious leader. He was willing to give up everything. His conversion to know Christ was so huge and miraculous that it literally required him to give up everything he knew as Paul and he would go forward just in whatever his ministry was. Is that a blunder? No. That's great. Something we can all aspire to. The truth is we have to keep all of our strengths in check or they can still trip us up. What we also know about Paul and his teachings over and over and over again is that he built his ministry on a message of grace. He constantly fought the idea that in order to follow Christ, it was all about what you did. It was about your behavior. It was about your ability to adjust your behavior to follow his teachings. Instead, he said, your salvation is only by grace. It is the only way it can happen. And we will see over and over again, Paul saying, the only way to follow him is by the power of the Holy Spirit within you because you cannot do it on your own. We cannot without grace, not only know Christ, but follow Christ. 
And he built his ministry on a message of grace. I, I believe because he himself knew that he was a great beneficiary of that very grace. We also can learn about Paul is that even he can lose sight of the grace that he was preaching at times. Even Paul could get so wrapped up in the message that he could lose sight the practice of expressing grace to others. One of the things I love about Paul is that he was willing to admit his faults. We read in Romans 7, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me that points to the very problem we all struggle with. The very real reality that no matter how much we pursue holiness, we're going to struggle with blunders. It's not I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You ever feel that way? I really want to do the right thing. I really want to do what honors God. I really, I really want to do what's healthy and good and benefits others. I really want to, but I just, I can't, I can't seem to bring myself to do it. I can't seem to bring myself to be that. I just, I can't seem to make it happen. That's exactly what Paul's saying. So if you ever feel that way, you are in good company. And it continues to point that we're all in the exact same position. What we learn from Paul is that Paul's strict adherence to the teachings of Jesus became an anchor point. He wasn't willing to change. He wasn't willing to adjust, to flex. He wasn't willing to change this idea of what it meant to follow and to be on target and to know where you're headed and what you wanted to do. And in this case, he lost sight of the opportunity to offer restoration to what appears to be a repentant believer. I'll tell you as we go through life following Christ, I, it is a struggle at times. Sometimes knowing when we need to hold someone accountable, one of the more difficult things we've talked about here is being our brother's keeper, knowing when we need to hold someone accountable because that no one, well, very few people embrace confrontation. Most people want to avoid confrontation. There are a few that love it, and they're our best friends, right? They're the ones we want to spend the most time with. We're so thankful when we get a new job and we find out our boss likes confrontation. This is going to be fantastic. We're going to have a lot of good years here. Most people don't like confrontation. There are a few that do, but most don't. Even those like Paul who held others accountable, they have to realize that there's a real chance that they're going to need it themselves in their own lives. Here's a, what appears to be a repentant believer. He's willing to go. He wants to go. He wants to be a part of the team. Paul says, nope. And he left us. Man, he betrayed us. He's gone. I, he's not coming with us. What, what's going to happen when we get out there and we get on the edge and we are really in need of each other and then he bolts again. He's gone again. Farmer says, I think he needs to come. He's not coming with me. Well, I think he needs to go. 
and they split. So what can we learn from Barnabas? With Barnabas, he took the message of grace and redemption very seriously. See, Barnabas was not just another disciple. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a good evangelist. Barnabas was different than a lot of the other apostles. The things that allowed them to stay on the straight and narrow whenever they were being hunted, persecuted, and killed, that drive that was within them that we see in Paul. Paul's been accused of a lot of things, being too harsh, being too judgmental, being too driven. But those are many of the characteristics that kept them going at a time when it was very difficult. Barnabas, not so much. Barnabas, a little bit of a softer touch. Barnabas, a big encourager. Barnabas saw when someone needed something and he felt compelled, I need to help them. I know I've had some of those people in my life. I hope you have some of those people in your life. Barnabas was a great guy. Barnabas is the kind of person who had a lot of friends because people want to be around others that encourage not tell you how you screwed up. Barnabas was the kind of person that he could further the ministry in a way that Paul never would. And he took this message of grace, this message of redemption, he took it very seriously. So far that in Acts 4, it actually calls Barnabas the son of encouragement. We see what he does with Paul. Paul's rough around the edges. Paul has a terrible reputation. Paul couldn't have changed as much as he says he has. That's what people are saying about him. And yet Barnabas saw something in him that said, God can work miracles in the life of a person who lets him. He believed in the redemptive work that could change us. The problems we have in life, he could cure those. And he gave out hope for those people that other people would give up on. And he was there with them. And we have a lot of those types of people in the room. We also have a lot of people in the room that could probably attribute some of their willingness to follow Christ based on others who were that for them. They saw something. They're not perfect. They've still got rough edges. They've still got problems. But it needs to be encouraged. The redemptive work of the Holy Spirit is, is supernatural. What it can do in a person's life, even this guy... Saul, he can do in anybody, even in John Mark. Barnabas saw what could happen when it's encouraged. They saw what God could do with a life that would bend a knee towards him. It was amazing his ability and capacity to encourage others. The reason I believe that's so amazing is because many people live their entire lives trying to be the one that people say good things about. They try their entire lives to be the one who is praised, the the one that is held up on a pedestal. They try their entire lives to have other people say good things about them and to them. And the thing about encouragers are that they don't need that. They give that stuff away to build up others. One of the things that made him such a great example. We see that Barnabas took his calling as an encourager very seriously. One of the things that are constantly on the mind of an encourager are the needs of others. What do they need? What can I help with? And what do I have that I can offer? They're constantly looking for ways that they can give that up to them. 
What we also find as we look at the story of Barnabas, though, is that there are times, and this often happens with those who are so focused on other people being encouraged and how other people feel and other people, things going well for them. At times, he let his sympathy for others override his commitment to the message. We actually read about that last week. Barnabas, at times, would hear a compelling argument, and because he wanted to encourage people, would encourage something that wasn't true or good or healthy. If we pick back up with the story we read last week in Galatians 2, it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned far before certain men Excuse me, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party or those of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, if you're Barnabas, you don't really appreciate being the footnote in a letter that he's writing to a church. Why'd you put that in there, Paul? I mean, I know I screwed up, but why did you have to put that in there? And it, they were going to, you know, in 2,000 years, churches will be reading about me screwing up. Why would you do that? Not really what he said. It is true. That's what happened. But Paul says he got so overwhelmed with these arguments that people were making that he lost sight of the true message. That even Barnabas was pulled away. So... When we come across somebody that's an encourager, should we just say, you know what? They're going to make mistakes. They're going to give up the message for a good argument. Somebody gives them a good sob story, and they're going to change their tune. But yet, Paul may not have gotten the start he had without him. Paul may not have been where he was without him. Because we need great encouragers in the world today. If you watch the news, if you watch sitcoms, if you listen to music, the world is not about encouragement. The world is about telling you how they're doing great and you're doing terrible. And yet what we need in the world is encouragement. We look at what's going on in Baltimore, what's going on in other parts of our nation. There's a real absence of encouragement in the world in which we live. Fortunately, many times we look at the church and we find a real absence in the act of encouragement. Instead, holding to a standard and making sure they know when they haven't met it. There's a need for encouragement. Whatever was going on within Barnabas, that drive that God had given him, that spiritual gift that he had to encourage, exhort others, he was willing to to part ways with a longtime friend for a judgment call that he felt was in line with the gospel. The need to show grace, to bring him along, to demonstrate the redemptive power of God, that needs to be told. Someone who's made a mistake needs to be given another chance. Someone who walked away and is wanting to come back needs to be welcomed back. And Barnabas was willing to split with Paul over it. And Paul with Barnabas. There are times that a a disagreement on how to proceed 
truly isn't right or wrong for either party. As we look at what's going on between Paul and Barnabas, it's, it's really hard to conclude who's in the right and who's in the wrong. It's not really the point of the story. It's not really the point of the sermon. As you read through Luke's account, even Luke really doesn't give any indication of who's right and wrong in this story. He just kind of tells the story and lays the facts out there. But I do think there are a few things we can learn from this. This is, if you're taking notes, this is what, what I want you to take. I think there are five things we can learn. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. One is this. Even the most devout followers of Jesus make mistakes. Even the most devout. Some may not believe it, but Billy Graham actually makes mistakes. <laughs> He's held up as our perfect father of an image of how we're supposed to live and act. And while he does a lot really well, he still struggles just like everybody else does. You're the most devout followers of Jesus. Make mistakes. In 1 Corinthians 9, even Paul describes that he knows he's prone to mistakes. It says, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Only one receives a prize, so run that you may obtain it. That's exactly his mindset. John Mark is not running in a way that he wants to really win this race. I want to win this race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we are imperishable, so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. He recognizes his propensity to miss the very message that he's teaching. Second thing I think we can learn from this, there's always two sides to a disagreement. Does anybody agree to that? No? There's always two sides to every disagreement. Whenever we hear a story about how someone's been mistreated, there's always another side of the story. Whenever you're at home with your spouse, there's always another side of the story, even though in your mind they've got no bearing on this argument whatsoever. There's always two sides to a disagreement. But even then, sometimes a disagreement causes the best outcome. Even in these blunders, even in these failures, God works in incredible, wonderful, mysterious ways. God can work through your own mistakes and your own failures just as he's worked through theirs. In this instance, what we find is that Paul goes off with Silas, Barnabas goes off with John Mark, and for whatever reason, we now have two teams going out. I think within these disagreements, one of the things that we, many of us struggle with is that we allow relationships to be broken way too easily. We get upset and we end a relationship. We disagree and we cut off a friend. 
We've lost the ability to disagree, to argue. We've lost the ability to sharpen each other because if you make me feel bad about myself, I won't have anything to do with you again. And in the church, we should be able to maintain relationships even when we disagree. And yet what we find are that that is, that is not the case today. We allow relationships to be broken way too easily. Third thing I think we can take from this story. There are times you have to follow your gut in the midst of criticism. For Barnabas, there was a time where he had to make a judgment call. There was a time when he had to say, this I believe is what God is telling me to do. Even though Paul disagrees with me, this is what God is telling me to do. This is exactly what the gospel is about. This is the way I've got to live my life. I have to be honest and true to what he is teaching me. There are times that you have to do what you believe is right, even when other people criticize you for it. This is one of the indicators of growth, one of the indicators of maturity, one of the ways that we begin to see God at work in us when we're willing to make a stand for something and be criticized for it. Something that's very lacking in a lot of our political leaders today. There are times you just have to follow your gut in the midst of criticism. You have to do what's right. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have these more times than you want to admit. Nobody likes to follow your gut in the midst of criticism. And yet, to follow Jesus in a world that does not validate what we believe, that is exactly what we're doing. We're working and we're walking, we're moving in directions that God tells us and others will criticize us for it. There are times you just got to do what's right. Fourth thing, here's one of the great things about this whole series. One of the great things about following Christ, one of the great things about struggling with sin in a world that we wish we didn't, is that God's will always wins, even when it's carried out by people prone to fail. See, if you've made a mistake... There's a voice inside your head telling you you're done. That's it. It's over. You've got nothing more to offer. You've messed up. You had the opportunity. It's gone. Yet what we read time and time again is that God continues to work even through people who are prone to fail. He still established the church with the help of someone who denied him on the day he was crucified. He still moved through the lives of the disciples even at times when they turn back. God's will always wins, even when it's carried out by people prone to fail. The last thing I think we can learn from this, and this is for some of us in the room, maybe more so than others, but even those most capable of holding others accountable must be willing be held accountable themselves. I, I have friends that see their ministry as holding others accountable. And the way that you know whether someone should be in that role for you is how willing are they to be held accountable themselves. When a person is not willing to be held accountable themselves, they don't have the spirit by which to hear what God wants to say. There's a humility that has to be in the lives of people following him. 
for those that are best capable to come alongside of you and say, listen, I see you're making some steps. I think think you're making a mistake. I want to help you stay on the path that God has set before you. There must be a humility within them to be able to hear that from from God, to be able to speak that to you. And that is sometimes most evident that when they misstep, their willingness to be corrected by someone else. The person you don't want to have in that position is a person who's right there telling you all your mistakes. And yet they'll never listen to someone telling them of their own. That is not the right person to be in any role of accountability. There has to be a place where we submit ourselves before God. Paul is a guy that, man, he knew it. I mean, he knew how you were supposed to live life. He knew what you were supposed to be doing. He could walk the path. He wrote the path for many churches. And much of the New Testament that we read came from his pen. He knew what it meant to have a strong system of beliefs. He knew what it meant to be able to apply those beliefs into action whenever he wasn't real sure how you were supposed to do it. He knew how to make that faith active in a world of uncertainty. And at times he knew how to get in front of those that he needed to to say, you need to change the direction you're going. But is he willing to accept the accountability from others? Both in today's story and in next week's story, we're going to be looking somewhat at areas where we're not real sure where the outcome came for some of these. Not real sure how everything kind of fleshed out. What was chosen to be preserved and to be presented doesn't give us maybe all the questions that we want. But what we do know about Paul is that he was willing to admit that he made mistakes. Do you know that Paul was willing to say, even though I'm going out and carrying this message, I am, I am just one step away from stepping out of bounds. And so I have to be so careful in how I train, so careful in what I do, so careful in how I live, because I know I'm prone to just do what is not helpful, not healthy, not what God wants. I know that's possible about me, Paul says over and over again. I appreciate hearing that from someone that had he not done that, we could very easily say Paul had it all together. No problems. He was the alpha male. He chose a way he was going to live and he didn't let anybody change his direction. That's not the story we hear about Paul. Instead, a guy who says, I have to beat my body. I have to beat the air. I have to do what I, whatever it takes So that I experience what God wants me to experience. Today you could find yourself in any any one of these characters. Maybe you feel like you're Paul and someone's betrayed you. Someone's turned against you. You're not real sure how you should act or what you should do. You know there's a message of grace out there. You're just not sure you're the one who can give it. I would encourage you to work through that. Grace is the center of the gospel. Some of you may be in the situation of Barnabas and you see the the potential in somebody. You see the good in somebody and you want to encourage that and bring that out of them. And yet others criticize you for doing that. They say you're soft. They say that you're too easy on people. And I would encourage you that if God leads you to act as Barnabas did, then do it. Some of you may see yourselves as John Mark. You made a mistake and you know it. 
and yet a group of people won't let you back. If we're going to be a people of faith that says we have been redeemed and rescued, then we certainly need to be willing and able to let people come back into our lives. I'm not just talking about church fellowship, church leadership, church ministry. I'm just talking about in life in general. Family members who hurt us. Friends who turn their backs on us. Co-workers who were real jerks <laughs> at our last meeting. We're going to be people following Christ. Got to be willing to see that restorative process in them. 